Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, American Diplomacy, the Supreme Court, and Presidential Power. All right, Richard. So the occasion for our conversation today is this ruling handed down by the Supreme Court earlier this week in a case called Zivotofsky v. Carey. The issue here, Congress had instructed the executive branch via statute that when an American citizen is born in Jerusalem, the accompanying documentation including the passport should designate the child as born in Israel. And that, of course, gets kind of sticky because of the disputed status of Jerusalem. So in this specific case, you had a little boy born in Jerusalem in 2002. His family wanted the designation of Israel as the place of birth. State Department said no. The executive branch essentially arguing that regardless of what Congress says, it's their prerogative to make the decision on foreign policy questions like these. So Richard, let's just start with the basic explanation. Whose side did the court come down on and why? Well, it was a decision which came down firmly on the side of the president and held that the inherent powers of the office of the presidency gave him both an exclusive and preclusive control over the question of whether or not you could recognize other nations and if so, the terms and conditions on which they were recognize. And since the court argued that you had that power to control the recognition, it also felt followed that you had the power to issue passports because the argument implicitly was this, that if you decide that you will not recognize Jewish claims over uh, Jerusalem until they're settled between the Israelis and the Palestinians, signing a passport which says that Jerusalem is part of Israel is essentially inconsistent with the diplomatic position that you've taken and the executive has to be able to speak with a single unified voice on these and all of these kinds of issues. So <clears throat> what happened is uh, the majority in this particular case said that the small issue really is part of the larger issue and that in foreign policies, this nation speaks generally with a unified voice and that's the voice of the president. Is that rationale – that rationale, by the way, comes from Justice Kennedy and the four Democratic appointees. Is that <laughs> rationale persuasive to you? It's in part persuasive and this is one of the great difficulties that one has in dealing with constitutional text. The interesting feature about it is if you look to the executive power, the major provisions, the commander-in-chief provisions, which you don't have to worry about here, uh, then there is that the president has the power to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. He also has the power to receive ambassadors. And if you try to look down that list and try to figure out where it is that the passport control comes from, there is no no obvious place in which it goes. The uh, Kennedy tries to put it in the ability to receive ambassadors, but that's a ministerial function and it doesn't quite tell you who in fact counts as an ambassador of another nation or a lot of other things. There may be certain degrees that will be left to executive discretion, uh, but it doesn't follow, I think, from that particular power alone that the president has control over all these areas of foreign policy. Justice Roberts in his dissents quoted a line from Alexander Hamilton saying that this was ministerial and it didn't have anything to do with the ultimate distribution of powers between the president and the Congress. There were no comparable passages that came through on the other side. So at that level, it doesn't look persuasive. But there are two things that cut on the opposite side. One is I think Justice Kennedy's opinion was at its strongest when it pointed to a uniform line of 
assertion of power by the president over this particular area and general acquiescence by Congress more often than not that this was in fact the correct state of affairs. So essentially what happens is the president comes in and says, we've always done it this way. We've done it this way for a very long time. Please don't uh, switch things on us uh, given the ambiguities associated with the text. This should remind you a little bit of some of the stuff having to do with recess appointments. The text makes it appear as though the recess appointment has to begin between the two sessions of Congress and cannot be carried over. It says something that may occur within that period and it has been read since 1820 to cover gaps that exist during that period even if they originated before. And so you have the originalist challenge of do you follow long, consistent practice on the one hand, or do you follow what seems to be a more explicit statutory command? In this case, the statutory or the textual commands, not statutory, is actually more difficult. On the other hand, if you start looking at the other side of this, where does Congress get the power? Its powers, remember, under our Constitution are enumerated. And which of them covers clearly the question of passports? Is this foreign commerce? I don't think anybody would want to say that it is, except in a fanciful way. Um, so that doesn't seem very plausible. Does this look like an illustration of the Senate treaty power? No, because first of all, it's not the Senate that's doing it. It's the full Congress. Um, well, what is it then? Is it the power to naturalize individuals? That doesn't seem to cover it. That covers situations where people are in the United States and you want to change their status from alien to citizen, uh, which is rather different from saying who it is that can file a passport with a particular identification number on it, which has nothing to do with naturalization. And so Justice Scalia points to a bunch of areas that are possible claims for authority, but none of them actually seem to fit. So you're left with this very odd situation where there's no explicit textual authority for the president to act unilaterally and there is no explicit authority for Congress to have the power to override him, which means that you're now going to be talking about the eternal principles of constitutional jurisprudence rather than any particular textual authorization. Given that ambiguity, Richard, is this a question that the court should have answered? Originally, this came up on political question grounds. The dispute was over whether the court should even step in and Justice Breyer indicated, even though he joined the majority, that he thought they probably should have stayed out of it. What do you think? Well, no, I think they probably have to wait in it. Um, this is really a question about distribution of authority and it's not a political question in the same way as, you know, should the United States decide to recognize the Palestinian authority or should it decide to recognize whether or not Israel does in fact have sovereign power over all of Jerusalem in the wake of the events post-1967 and so forth. Um, if you recall, there was the one man, one vote issue having to do with Baker v. Carr and Justice Brennan, I think, was quite persuasive to say, you know, you're not engaged in a political question when it turns out that you systematically have concluded that large numbers of individuals have had their votes diluted by virtue of this misrepresentation and that a court ought to do something about it. He did not treat this as saying, well, you know, I think that the state legislature should spend more money on city roads or on country roads or agricultural subsidies or anything else. He said essentially that what the Constitution does is require some way in making the representative branches of government 
government representative, and his job was to enforce it. Uh, you could certainly disagree with one man, one vote, and still argue that the court ought to intervene. Um, and that would be on the grounds, for example, that in a representative Republican government, the Senate often is constituted on different principles from the lower house, and maybe that should apply to the states. I don't want to go into the merits of it, but you can see where it's going. So I don't like the Breyer argument particularly, and I don't think it really carried the day with respect to anybody else. But what's so charmingly difficult about this particular question is given the fact that the text comes short on both sides, uh, you're now left with the question of how does this relate to textual theory, uh, the constitutional structure, or to practice. And as I've indicated to you, the practice tends to favor the president, uh, but the structural arguments on which Justice Scalia wrote a fairly strong opinion, in my view, cut very much in the opposite direction. There is a famous decision called Youngstown Sheet and Tooth Steel Company uh, against the United States, and the question was whether or not Harry Truman unilaterally could take over the steel injury. Um, this was so-called steel seizure cases, and Justice Braxton, in a concurrence, said, look, there are three situations here, and they're pretty easy to identify. One is where it turns out that the Congress authorizes the president to do something. That's easy. It's now that he just has to take care to see that the law is faithfully executed. The second is where it prohibits it. He said that's easy in the opposite direction. And the third is what do you do in the cases of silence? And so to Scalia, this is a case in which there has been an explicit prohibition. And if there's an explicit prohibition, the president's power is at its low ebb, and he sees nothing that overcomes it. And Justice Robertson, a very short and pointed um, dissent, says this is the first time ever when Congress has legislated on something uh, that the president is free to disregard it. And so both of them start talking about arbitrary and unitary power in a kind of a fearful terms, whereas the president is saying you need to have a steady hand and a single voice in foreign affairs. So this is a very high stakes debate. And even the abstract principles tend to divide uh, somewhat uncertainly between the two sides. Well, let's talk about the, the bigger issue that that presents because the quote that you referenced from Chief Justice Roberts, I have it here. Dis Today's decision is a first. Never before has this court accepted a president's direct defiance of an act of Congress in the field of foreign affairs. And as you mentioned, Scalia sort of characteristically caustic. I mean he, he compared this to a, a monarchical system. But this has been a broader issue that we've been arguing about through both the, the Bush and the Obama administrations, <laughs> which is this question of have we tilted too much towards presidential supremacy on the foreign policy side? Well, what do you think? How do you understand the appropriate separation of powers there? Well, this is really tough because remember the first thing that you have to do is to recognize that one essential element in foreign policy is the treaty power. And there the president has the power to negotiate the treaties, but they have to be done with the consent of the Senate before they take effect. And so you get these very elaborate negotiations, for example, over the trade agreements in the Pacific in which what the president asked for his fast-track authority, and what he says is, if I can negotiate a treaty, you could go up or down on it, but you can't start modifying it because I can't deal with my allies if I have to constantly go back and forth. And this is basically him saying that the expedition and unitary authority argument really matters, but he doesn't try to cut them out. And you remember, with respect to what's going on in this case, these are not difficult negotiations. This is simply a ministerial function as to whether or not the word Jerusalem and Israel can appear in the same sentence on a passport. You can say you're born in Jerusalem but not in Israel or Israel but not in Jerusalem, but you can't do both is what the State Department position turns out to be. And and so, you know, you, it doesn't look to me like it's a kind of a treaty question. Then there are all the war powers associations, and one of the things that Justice Scalia and Justice Roberts 
kind of both understand, is that at least half of the enumerated powers that are found in Article 1 dealing with the legislation are about matters having to do with foreign relationships, whether it has to do with letters of mark and reprisal, declaring war, organizing the militia, um, raising an army or a navy and things of that. And, you know, absolutely, these are a lot of foreign affairs overpowers. So which way do you go? And in an earlier debate on this question as to whether or not, for example, the president um, could disregard his clear command of the con- Congress when it decided to organize certain kinds of searches, you know, FISA searches without statutory authorization, um, it turns out I was on very much on the anti-president side on that. I was, I was in favor of the searches, but I thought he ought to get um, congressional authorization and that failing that, he should be suppressed. And so it's, I think there really is a strong case for saying that the unilateral action by the president can be very dangerous. On the other hand, I don't want the president to say, well, before I could fire a gun back at the Japanese when they're attacking at Pearl Harbor, I have to call Congress into session and by this time another 10,000 Americans are dead. Everybody has always understood that in case of emergency, the president is authorized to use all force. That then gets you into the war powers resolution and so forth. So this is a can of worms. Um, And I think the answer is that there is no categorical answer that covers all cases. Last question that I'll put to you. One of the issues this brought back up, one we really haven't heard much about for a while, is presidential signing statements. That was a big issue during the Bush administration and it's a factor here because President Bush signed the law that contained this instruction to recognize Jerusalem for the passports, etc. But he issued a signing statement saying that that part of the law was an infringement on presidential powers and that he was going to treat it as advisory. Uh, Richard, there was a lot of breathlessness during the Bush years around the notion that signing statements like that were a kind of presidential overreach. Where do they fit in the constitutional order by your lights? Well, they don't fit very well into it at all. I mean, essentially what happens is as follows. The Constitution gives Congress the power to package legislation, be it large or small. And it gives the president the power to have a veto over the entire package, which can then be overridden by two-thirds of each house, starting in the house where the bill originated. And what the signing statement attempts to do is to say, I can accept 90% of it and knock out 10% of it, where that is not allowed anywhere else. So essentially, I'm not really happy about the signing statements. But then let's just take it one step further. Suppose the president doesn't issue a signing statement in this particular case, and he just signs the bill. And then this Jerusalem issue comes up and the Secretary of State decides not to give the passport. Can you stop the president on the grounds that he approved the legislation? I think the answer to that case has to be no. Um, If in fact it is beyond his power to do so, then um, that is beyond Congress's power to do so, then it's still beyond his power to do so. Think of it this way. Suppose President A decides to sign the legislation because he's perfectly comfortable with it, and President B comes along and says, sorry, not on my life. I, this encroaches on my, you know, encroaches upon my inherent powers. The second guy can certainly challenge the first one. I think the first guy can challenge it if, in fact, the bill is passed over his veto. Um, when he says, it's so important to me that this not be done, and then they pass the whole thing. So my view about it is that the signing statement should be understood as a statement of intention, but I don't think it improves the president's case one iota, and I don't think it compromises the Senate's case one iota. But if, in fact, he has a strong point which is raised there, um, he is still permitted to raise it even after the entire piece of legislation has gone through. So I do think it is principled to say... 
um, I will hereby sign this piece of legislation, but I or my successor in office reserve the power uh, to essentially challenge it on the grounds that it's an encroachment of power. That seems to be appropriate. It's not a hell of a lot different from a signing statement. So when you start to think about the signing statements as kind of early warning situations, no binding effect, but now everybody kind of knows that the president might be coming after this. If you anticipate one of these things coming, uh, you may try to negotiate something with the president so as, as to ease the constitutional difficulty. But I think the essential point is uh, if these are structural limitations contained in the Constitution, even if the president and unanimous members of both houses say we don't have to do it that way, it has nothing to do with the constitutional argument. Anybody at any time, if they have standing, is permitted to challenge the thing on the grounds that it upsets the constitutional structural balance and puts something that the framers did not authorize in its place. So this is a profoundly originalist debate and is very little living constitution stuff that manages to seep in even at the edges. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.